if you've been with us so far in this new series. We started with some theological stuff in chapter 1. And then Paul had to pause last week and go into a, a prayer break to pray for the people that were listening and pray for those that are hearing. And then luckily for you, because you're in person, you don't, you're, you're not this person that I'm about to describe. But somebody this week said, hey man, I've been watching you guys online. And you said something about the first week of Ephesians when you boosted the, the new series that it was going to be about real life application and, and all this stuff. So I just want to remind you, I did say that, but I said real life application would come after the understanding of salvation. So that makes sense. Cause Paul goes into this thing and he writes this thing and we're all wanting the, the answer to how to be better husbands and how to be better wives and how to be better children and how to be better workers and how to solve this and how to, but before he talked about any of that stuff, right after this, this intro of theological truth and then some prayer for the understanding, the very next thing he jumps into is making sure they understand salvation. So some of you may know, and, and you can jot down your own notes. I just made like a little list of things that I know is in the book of Ephesians. And I want to make sure that before we even get to any of this stuff, we see that Paul teaches on salvation. So before racial division, because that's in Ephesians, in case you didn't know it. He talks about salvation before he uses the verse. He can do more than any of us have ever imagined. He talks about salvation before he talks about speaking truth and love. He makes sure we understand salvation before he says, don't get drunk on wine. He makes sure we understand salvation before he says, husbands, love your wives. He makes sure we understand salvation before he says, wives, submit to your husbands. He makes sure we understand salvation before children are to obey parents. He preaches on salvation before he talks about the armor of God in Ephesians Chapter 6, he talks about salvation. And before he talks about wrestling against all the stuff and all the different powers and all the world around us, he talks about salvation. So I'm looking forward to getting to the application and the hands-on stuff more than anybody, I promise you. But Paul, who is much wiser than any of us in the room and who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this letter, I believe he's got an understanding of we got to make sure we get an understanding before we jump the gun on stuff. Because if not, we're going to do a lot of good stuff but we're not even going to understand why we're doing good stuff. That makes sense. We understand that. See, something significant about this letter that I didn't catch on the intro, so I apologize for not sharing with you guys, is normally Paul's letters, he's writing in a response to a letter from the church. I mean, you look at many of his letters in the New Testament, and he's writing, well, you asked about this, let me explain it. Or you, you questioned this, or you're worried about this, or this is going on, or I've heard about this in your church, so I want to make sure you get it. Before any of that, Paul says, look, I was with you guys three years. I spent time with you. I weeped over you. I cried over you. I want to make sure you get this. And I want to make sure after you get it that you can start applying it and the world sees it in you. So let's jump into the beginning of this thing and see what Paul's talking about. All right, because the last chapter ended, if you didn't remember and know, last chapter ended with Paul talking about the resurrection power of Jesus. We talked about that being significant at this point because now Paul considers what the implications of Jesus' resurrection power have over our own lives. That all the songs that we've been singing this morning, some of the words that, that we've been going on about, and, and, and what Paul's doing, he says the explanation of the gospel is this. What is true about us is what made Jesus have to have an, uh, an operation mission necessary. So he starts off this very beginning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Actually, before we even get there, I want, I want to look at what Paul does, because he does kind of give some real life thing right here. There's two things that are ingrained in our culture that we try to believe about evil. And Paul destroys both of them right off the rip. And, and the first one is this. 
Ask anybody, and the problem that's in the world, the main problem in the world is what? Other people. Am I right? Ask anybody, what's wrong? Well, those other people. Those people on the news. Those people, maybe we can say it this way. What's wrong in the world is people who don't see things the way we see things. Right? Whatever your political views are, whatever your football sports team is, whatever your understanding is, whatever your denominations are, all that stuff, we, we, we are quick to blame other people. Well, verse 1, what did it say? You. Who's the you? Who's the you? Us. So he go ahead and blows that, that, that theory about other people being the problem of the world right on out. And, and he says, other people aren't the main problem. We are the main problem. And he's talking to a church. So in case you thought, well, because I came to church, that put me up. No. He's saying, you guys are the problem. You guys had this problem. And then he goes, he's going to go on in a minute to talk about this problem. And, and here's the second myth. The second myth, for some strange reason in, in our world, in our society, in our culture, we, we've developed this thing that says, like, we are good and we just slipped a little bit. Or we are good and we get confused. Or we are good and we, we lose our way. Or we are good and, and we just got weak. In Ephesians 2 verse 1, he says, you were dead in your trespasses. Now, other than the food you go eat, is there anything good from something that's dead? No, it's dead. And so, yeah, dead food, ain't that's true too. <laughs> Especially if you sat in that leftover box for too long, right? So the second myth of, of people being basically good, he's blowing out the water saying, you guys were, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses and, and your problem. Why? Because sin is a fatal disease that exists in the heart of every person. And no matter how glorious and how awesome and how close we try to get, Paul is saying, like, I want you to go back and to remember what you were rescued from. Because if you don't remember what you were rescued from, you're not going to have some grace and mercy on those that need rescue and next. If you don't re- if you don't understand what you were rescued from, you're not truly going to be able to say the line to that last song we did right before the the one that says, "How glorious and how marvelous is the love of God for me." Because if you don't understand how dead and lost you were and how how worthless you really were, let's just call it like it is, right? How worthless you were, then you'll never be able to understand how marvelous and how great His love is for you. Right. So, so, so he goes in and, and, and he gets those things kind of labeled down, I guess you could say. And I think maybe our problems was talking about like problems with beliefs is a lot of us think like sin is bad actions. I steal, I lie, I cheat. Paul is saying in the word dead, he's saying that sin is not so much an action as a condition. That makes sense. Maybe we can understand it this way with what I was going. So our bad actions are symptoms of our dead condition. Meaning that you can say it this way. You don't have the flu because you, I noticed I didn't say COVID. I don't want any of y'all to have a heart attack, right? So, so, so you don't have the flu because you cough and sneeze and run a fever. You cough, sneeze, and run a fever because you have the flu. Do we understand the difference? Like, like sin, you, you, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. What he's saying at the very beginning of this letter, making sure that people grab a hold of that's deep, deep in theological truth, is that we all have a condition called sin. We missed the mark, and we need to address it. And if we don't understand that we've missed the mark, well, we're in a in a heap of trouble. No, no, to, to, to prove that, because people are like, man, how do we all have that? Can't some people just be naturally good? Anybody, anybody have children that sometimes act like jerks? Just be honest, right? Did you have to teach them to act like that? Huh? Did you have to teach them to come inside and say, we're taking over? 
Paxton knows what that's about. Did you have to teach them to come inside and, and snatch the remote from the other person? Or did you have to teach them to be mean and hypercritical of other people? No. They develop it naturally. Even, even, even as babies, like before they can ever speak and walk and, and whatnot. We, we were laughing watching a, a video of, of somebody's of child the other day and, and child can't walk, child can't talk, child can barely smile, but it knows how to steal the food that it wants. That's near somebody, right? They, they naturally understand we have a, we have an eye problem. I, 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 I'm worried about me. I want it to be all about what I got going on. I want to make sure I understand what's going on. So, so just looking at our kids as parents, we understand that we all have a condition of being sinners, right? So, so for those of us that think like there's categories to this, here's another picture for you I thought of this week. If you were to walk across a battlefield and there's 20 dead corpses, that's a real pretty picture for a Sunday morning, right? Like some of those bodies that were laying there wouldn't even be able to be recognized. Some of them you wouldn't even be sure was dead, you know, because they, they still look fine. Some of them would be deteriorating already. Some of them had just dropped dead and, and whatnot. But what do they all have in common? They are all dead, right? So as they're all dead, they, they, they relate to this condition. So Paul is saying, like, I want to make sure we understand this. It doesn't matter if you look okay if you're all dead. Dead is dead. He's not saying kind of dead, almost dead. A little bit of dead. He's saying dead is dead. And no amount of religious behavior is going to fix us because behavioral changes only affect the outside. Right? Think about, so Mitch a minute ago said something about dead food is not, not ever good. Now, any of you guys ever have one of those to-go containers, maybe even a Tupperware, you put it in your fridge and possibly forgot about it for a, a little bit of time and eventually went to clean out the fridge. You, you with me? You, you've been there? All right, when you go in there and you open that thing, thank God mine doesn't work most of the time. My wife is who I can relate with the most on this. You, you open that or, or Paxton's quick to smell stuff too, and, and it, it stinks, right? So for some of you, if your nose works really good, after you pick yourself up off the ground, do you have the thought, man, I just need to put some barbecue sauce on it or another spice on it, some ranch on it, Right, some Chick-fil-A sauce, because now you can buy that. You don't even have to go there, right? Like, like, do I just need to put some good stuff on it to make it better? That's that's not the theory? No, because why? Because it's dead. It's nasty. Hopefully it was dead when you put it in the fridge, by the way. Oh, you know, that'd be that'd be one thing in its own. But but as it goes on, it's decaying, and that process has been going on. So nowhere along the way do you say, man, I should just cover up that stench with a spice and then and then eat it. No. In our very own nature, we are spiritually dead, Paul says, and we are rotting and we're starting to smell. And nowhere in there should we be covering up the areas of the stench of our life with some religious activity until we realize how, how new we can be made. So Paul starts this thing. Verse one, he says, those who were dead in trespasses and sins. Again, I just want to point out that like, we should never forget how far we've come, guys. Not, not, not we as in what we've done, but how far Christ has pulled us. Out of that pit. Other places in scripture as he goes through. Describes the state of an unsaved man. This is, this is just for notes. So you guys can grab a hold of it. And understand how bad our, our condition is with trespass and sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 he calls us blind. Walking around those world blind. In Romans chapter 6 he says we're a slave to sin. In John chapter 3 he says we're a lover of darkness. In Mark chapter 2 he says we're just sick. In Mark, uh, Luke chapter 15 he says that we're lost as we walk around. In Ephesians Chapter 2 that we'll get to next week, uh, 12 and 19, he calls us an alien, a stranger, a foreigner. Today he calls us a child of wrath. Do you understand how 
how low we should be looking at our condition of who we are without Christ. And in Colossians chapter one, he says we're under the power of darkness. Verse one in the trespasses and sins. The idea behind the word trespasses is that we've crossed a line. We've challenged God boundaries and we've missed the mark through this sin. Uh, we've said before, and I'm sure a lot of you know from Bible study, like that, that word sin is an archery term. Like you, you, you missed the, the mark. You missed perfection. You missed God's perfect standard by which we're supposed to be leaving, living. And then verse two, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air. Man, this, this goes, I don't know if you guys ever grabbed a hold of, you guys remember the first time you ever read the verse? I use it because I know a lot of us, if not all of us have heard it. You remember the first time you read where we were an enemy of God when he died for us? Did, do you ever, did you ever have a moment where like you read that and it hit you and you're like, like you couldn't understand it? Like if you hadn't had the moment I'm talking about, like maybe, maybe I'll be able to, I won't be able to do a good job at getting you to understand but man, I remember one time I was reading it and I, I was like blown away that he died for me while I was his enemy. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like totally against him. And what way? I would even try to justify the, the thought after I realized that I'd be like, I wasn't an enemy of God. I just wasn't completely sold out for him. And, and what does scripture say? To be one is the other, right? If you're not completely sold out, then you're against him. Right. So. So as he goes on, and this is the same thing when he when Paul says this right here, if I was an Ephesus and reading this for the first time, man, where he said, you, you were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power there. What are you saying? He's saying you're a follower of Satan. Right. Like, do you understand how, how deep he's going? And remember, Satan's core rebellion is exactly what we just talked about with our kids. It's the I will. And Isaiah five times. It lists Satan's problem of the eye problem. He said, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Think about how you talk and ideas that roll through your head and see how often you come ahead of God. Your worries and your concerns come ahead of Abba Father. We got an eye problem. And when you and I joined into this rebellion, our sin condition what Paul is writing, he says, we, we became children of Satan. Like we were following his spirit and his spirit shaped us and led us and, and had us going. And then thankfully, as it keeps going, well, I guess not thankfully yet, still verse three. But from there, verse three, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. The will of God was supposed to be our highest pleasure. It should have swayed every decision we made. Yet we allowed other things to become our master. Yet most of us still every day allow something else to become our master. We, we obey the impulses of our, of our body and mind is what he just now said. Our body says have sex, eat, drink, take it easy, be lazy, get angry. And we do all of them. Our, our mind says make your own decisions, do things your way, make, do what makes you happy. And we, we obey. And the problem is some of us think that I've made some mistakes, but, but for Paul to say I'm dead, and some of us think, like, I've made some mistakes, but for Paul to call me a follower of, of Satan, to say that I'm his sons and, and his daughters, to say that I am a, a children of wrath, is it really that bad? According to Scripture, yes. According to God's standard, yes, because our biggest sin is replacing God's authority in our lives with our own and living for our own glory instead of for his. How often is it we watch ourselves stumble because we put ourselves 
ahead of Christ. And something else I realized this week, man, just just because, and maybe it's because of of crystal studies and stuff with different cases and conditions and and people and, and real life stories, but just because you haven't experienced the full outworking of, of your mistakes doesn't mean those mistakes aren't present inside of you. Do, do you understand like how, how I'm saying that? Like like I think in all honesty, some of the some of the things I look at others and I'm like, man, I would have never done that. I've never done that, nor would I ever do that. And then I have to be honest, I'm like, I, I probably never did that because I wasn't given the chance to do that. Is that more honest? I probably hadn't did the same things they've done or walked down the same path they've walked down or committed the same mistakes they've committed because it's present inside of me. Scripture clearly says the capacity to do evils in every single one of us. Yet there's a lot of conditions that keep us from from growing into those things. Right. So so you could almost say this. And maybe this is part of what Paul is trying to make sure they understand as well. If this is what I got out of it is who are we to judge? Other people's circumstances, when in reality, that same thing's inside of us. So we could have turned out the same way if we had just made one or two different decisions. If we had just turned one or two different directions. Now, Paul starts here because in order to really understand what we call the gospel, the good news, and place value on it, you've got to understand what you're saved from. Right? Is, is that not why we, we go to go to doctors? Do, do physicians not know, like, if you don't diagnose the right disease, then you can't prescribe the right cure? What, what if they prescribe a cure for something you ain't got? What's going to happen to your condition? Most of them, it ain't going to change. Sometimes it might get worse, right? So if we don't get the right prescription for the right problem, we're going to be in trouble. And Paul says, I want to make sure you grab a hold of this because if you really don't understand the problem you have, you'll never embrace the cure. The cure being Christ on the cross, the, the cure being uh, some actions and changes that have to take place, some cure being that I got to lower myself and raise him up. We see it in counseling all the time. I don't know, well, if you guys aren't counselors, maybe you've seen it in your friends. I'm sure you've seen it on your, your, your Facebook and, and social media, right? People come in and they want what? The solution. Am I right? They, they don't really care and they don't really want to talk about their problems. They just want the solution. We live in a Burger King world, right? We want it our way. We want it. We want it now. We just want the, the, here's the reality of it is we don't want to talk about the problem because it makes us uncomfortable. We just want to fix it because we think that would make things easier in a way to go. And Paul's point in Ephesians 2 is that we, we all do this with God. We want the answer, but we don't really want to hear about the problem. We, we do it in our churches. We, 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 we try to undercut everything about the problem and try to get as fast as we can to the solution. We do it in revivals all the time. Let's just get to the solution. Well, the solution ain't going to do no good if you don't understand the problem. And what Paul is saying is the cure isn't going to really be the cure for you if you didn't understand the condition you were in. And it's vital. And Paul, he takes this part of this letter to make sure we understand it. And he's not saying this is going to be comfortable. He's not saying you're going to feel, you know, great about it. You know, matter of fact, to be honest, for some of it, it's going to be uncomfortable. Anybody ever wore a, a parachute? Five of us, three of us? Those those other three that raised their hand, I think they actually jumped out of the plane with the parachute. I just wore the parachute. Big difference, right? But 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 here's the thing: those things are very uncomfortable. Like not not to be too too blunt, but like they they got straps in weird places. You know what I'm saying? Like they're they're not a comfortable thing to wear. They're not comfortable to to sit and and, and move around with. And and if you were about to take a plane ride and you knew that plane was going to crash, no matter how uncomfortable the parachute was, you would wear it. 
for the duration of that ride, correct? Well, Paul is saying, look, there's going to be, and Jesus doesn't hide this either. He's saying there's going to be some very uncomfortable things on this ride. But I assure you, you're going to be, you're going to want to know that you have this parachute on. And I'm not just talking about for salvation either. I'm talking about something that's going to go way deeper, which which Paul nails on. So I'm glad of it. Right. So, so, so as he goes into this thing, maybe you could take that even further. If you knew the plane was going down, you'd be trying to convince everybody else to put on an uncomfortable parachute, too. So I guess it does go into a little bit of a evangelism along the way. And, and this is big because until you understand the problem, you'll never cherish grace. Here's what Spurgeon says about it. The reason we think too lightly of the Savior is we think too lightly of sin. Only he who has stood before his God, feeling the listen to this description, man. So the reason we feel too lightly of the Savior is because we think too lightly of our sin. Only he who has stood before his God, feeling the rope of God's judgment around his neck, will be the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which he has been forgiven of. Do we see what Spurgeon, like the picture he's painting, man? He's saying like you, you were standing there and you had the, you had the noose all the way around your neck already. And you knew you were guilty. You knew everything they were saying about you was right. And then thankfully you were able to have that noose removed. And that's, that's the feeling. You, you, you felt like you were the joy of having that, that rope removed around your neck. Verse two. I got to go back to that. I'm sorry. It says once walk. Here, here's what he's meaning. We should be walking different when we become alive in Christ. And this is what Paul's going to get to. Because why, 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 I need to tell you guys, I, I get a little cringy on chapters like this because we use that word saved all the time. And, 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 and hear me out. I'm not saying saved is just this, this bad thing, but I think we've made it sometimes a bad thing. Right? Because what have we, what have we really preached and started telling people? You just get saved for what? What are you getting saved for? Car insurance, uh, fire insurance. Right. You probably said fire insurance in my car. I'm going deaf. It's the air guns. Right. But 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 think about like like what does Paul say in this chapter? What's he about to say in a minute? He goes, you guys got saved so that you could do good works. So therefore, it's more than just this eternity kind of idea. We always preach to people. It's more than just getting out of hell kind of idea. Right. So so that's why the, the word sometimes makes me really like cringe. But in all honesty, when I realize my condition I mean, there's no better word to describe it than I got saved. I got saved from the judgment that was coming my way. I got saved from a from a condition that was going to continue to destroy me if I did. And what Paul says here is when we once walked that way, as, as we come out, we should be made different. Well, what's he saying in verse two? He's saying a dead man feels comfortable in his coffin. But if you were made alive, could you imagine if you were you were put in a coffin and then you woke up after they closed that coffin? What are you going to do? Just picture what well, I mean, what would you do? Literally. Kick, scream, worm, squirm, right? Punch through it. I mean, you would be going crazy, correct? So what Paul is saying is you were once this way, and sure, when you were that way, it was comfortable to lay in the coffin, right? But when you got woke up inside of a coffin, man, there should have been a strong urge inside of you to leave it. Am, am I correct? If you don't have a strong urge to leave what you used to be, you haven't fully experienced what Paul's talking about with the gospel of the good news and salvation, Right? And that's what Paul's trying to make sure this church understands. He goes, you guys are never going to be able to get over racial division and, and understand the power of God to do more in your life and to speak truth and love and, and to not be drunk on wine and to love your wives, husband, and wives to submit, children to obey and put on the armor and, and, and to wrestle against all the things you're supposed to do. You're never going to be able to do those things if you don't fully understand 
what Christ has done in and through you. And he's saying, I, I, I don't want you to be comfortable in your trespasses and your sins any longer. I want you to get comfortable in this new life and escape that coffin and, and, and leave it behind. Verse three. We all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh. We were sons of disobedience. We were it was proven by our conduct and, and, and what we did. Guys, I, I'm so grateful. Go back to that word saved. And, and, and if you know me a little bit, you know, like I've shared before, like how much I, I really get worried about that word. Because of, I think, some of the false ideas we put into people. That's what that's what I'm worried about. It's not it's not. Please understand this. Understanding the word save the right way is great. But when we understand it the right, the wrong way, I'm so afraid that we painted a lot of people a picture that didn't do justice to what they were really saved from. OK, so, so that's why I'm so big on it. But. But when I read this, <laughs> there's nothing better than being saved because I, I didn't need to be improved, edited, updated, rebooted, enhanced. I, I needed to be forgiven. I needed to be restored. I needed to be redeemed. I needed to be resurrected, as he just talked about in the last chapter. I needed to be saved. But I had to understand my condition first, right? I didn't need Jesus to come to me as a life coach and help me turn over a new leaf. I needed a resurrected Savior who was going to come and give me a new life. Because that's what he said. He said, I'm coming to make things new in you. So you got one through three. And, and really in those three verses, Paul sums up like either three or six of the chapters in Romans. He goes way deeper into Romans about our, our sinful condition and all the bad news and, and all this great stuff. And then, then right before verse four, like I can picture Paul pausing as he's writing this. And before the two greatest syllables in the world come about, look at verse four. You were worthless. You were lost. You were a child of Satan's. You were a child of wrath. You were, you were downright evil. You had all kinds of problems going on. And then verse four, but God, we need some but God moments in our life. I don't know if it's correct to say it, but maybe we just need a but God theology. You know what I'm saying? Because, because when we fully understand a lot of this stuff, that but God goes so much deeper and so much further than we could ever imagine. Because what he's saying is you were you were helpless, but God. Now notice, you were helpless, you weren't hopeless. Because your hope is going to come from Christ. Right? But he is, he is saying you were, you were helpless on your own, but God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love which he loved us. Again, here's my problem, man. Many theologians and many Christians themselves, we talk about salvation so coldly and mechanically like it's a formula that we leave out what Paul is saying right here, that it was love that drew salvation planned. And maybe you're one of those believers that have done this for so long where like you just developed this, this methodical plan, mechanical plan on what salvation is and, and, and you just jotted it down and that was it. And you left it at that and you totally missed it. But it was his love that did this. And if you don't understand the love of God in a moment like this, you're going to not understand what he's done for you. It wasn't just love. What does it say? It was also mercy. A mercy that we would have never deserved. You, you ever been one of those people talking about God's mercy? You, you, ever, you ever heard those people talk, man, I don't understand why God doesn't just have more mercy and save everybody and, and all that, right? Like if I was God, I would do it this way kind of mentality. Like if I was God, I'd figure out a way where, where everybody... Have you ever looked at all the examples 
mostly in the Old Testament, but I think there's some even in the New, where, where it describes in Scripture where God and man are compared about their mercy. And you ever thought about who was the one that had less mercy? We just went through kings, so I sure hope we got it. Right? Did God not give them chance after chance after chance after chance after chance? So when we sit there and fool ourselves thinking that we would be more, don't flatter yourself into thinking that you would be more forgiving than God is. You won't forgive the guy who pulled out in front of you in traffic when you leave church today. Right? I mean, let's just be honest about it. In Scripture, every time God God and man are compared, God is more merciful. God is more patient. God is more loving. And it's until that gospel seems too good to be true that you really haven't understood it. When you sit back and you're like, man, I can't believe. I love that moment, man. And I wish believers would keep that moment a little long. But I love that moment when you watch somebody and they first get it. They first begin to understand like this whole this whole process and, and what it's meaning and all that and the fire that flows from and the excitement that comes through and all the all the emotions that's going on when they realize that we were dead in our sins, yet Christ made us verse five, yet Christ made us alive together with him. I also love that verse five is in past tense, by the way, that we were dead, right? Paul's not talking about some gradual religious process. He's talking about something that Christ already did on the cross. And then we talk all the time about, well, I don't understand why Jesus had to go to the cross and, and God just can't forgive everybody and have a clean slate and all that, right? I got an easy example for that one because people want to use it all the time. You, you ever been in a car wreck? You, you ever you ever had somebody wreck your car, maybe shoot it through a gate at the tire store and land in somebody's front yard, right? I mean, your brand new 97 Honda Accord, right? And put some pinstriping on it. You, you ever seen that, right? You, you ever wanted to forgive that person? I forgive you instantly. Somebody's still got to pay for the damage on the car, though, right? Am I right? Do, do we understand this? Why there's got to be a payment kind of thing going on? Either that, or you do like I did, and you just drive a '97 Honda Accord around with scratches and, and mess ups all on it, still still going on, right? Nobody nobody fixes it, then it's still in its old state. But if it's going to be put back into its new state, why somebody's got to pay, right? So who pays? That's why God just can't wipe the slate clean. Because he had this good idea. Jesus didn't merely die for us. He died instead of us. And when you get to verses 5 through 7, where, where I talk about that past tense, you got the past tense, you got the present tense, and then you got the future of God's work through this reconciliation. What did it say? We were dead. And again, I point out, this is when God started loving you. He, he didn't start loving you, and he didn't wait until you were lovable. He loved you when you were dead in your trespasses and sin. He loved you when you were, he loved you when you were providing nothing to be lovable with. He made us alive together in Christ. This is what God did to those who were dead in sin, it says. He shared in our death so that we could share in his resurrection. That resurrection that he ends chapter one with is so vital for what goes on here with this new creation. The old man is crucified and that we become new creations in Christ. Old things get passed away and all things become new. The rest of verse five, by grace you have been saved. Paul is compelled to add here that it is the work of God's grace that does this. Then he goes into verse 6. Sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is your present position as a Christian. That's awesome. Now you got to notice what it says because some of you are thinking, well, hold on. I'm still sitting here in the middle of Brookhaven Fellowship on a Sunday morning. It says you were sitting that way in Christ. You understand the difference? Our life, our identity is in Christ. He sits in the heavenly places, so therefore we do too. 
Look at Philippians 3.20. Some people use this talk about dual citizenship, right? But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, anybody who's born who's got uh, dual citizenship, there comes a point in their life, I want to say 18, but I don't know if that's just because it's that legal age, where they got to decide which one are they going to be, right? Maybe it's the same thing for us as believers. You got dual citizenship, and God's asking you now, all right, so which one's it going to be? Are you going to be a citizen of this kingdom, or are you going to be a citizen of my kingdom? You don't get to be both, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, in Christ, in Christ, you are seated where he's at. One way to see the greatness of the grace of God is to see how much he begs men to receive it. You ever, ever just look through the gospel and seen all the times God begs people to believe what, what, what's being preached? I mean, his people and, and his workers and, and his illustrations and stuff. Man, if I try to give somebody a gift and they don't take it, I'm probably just going to take the gift back and keep it myself. You know what I'm saying? Jesus begs them, man, I know I want you to get this. For by grace you have been saved. Paul can't speak of this glorious work of God without reminding us that it's a gift of grace given to an undeserving group of people. You ever, because we, we talk all the time, I need to make sure we get this. This is a good illustration for it too. We are not saved by our faith, but by grace. What does it say? Through faith. We get that? Because sometimes I think like we, we, we think that like that faith makes us super Christians or something. That's not what the verse says. The verse says that we are saved by grace through faith. So you can think of it this way as water flowing through a water hose. The water is the important part. That's what's going to quench your thirst at the end, right? I know some of y'all are thinking, hold on, we don't drink from water hoses anymore. That's y'all's problem right there. That's why y'all so scared of getting sick because y'all quit drinking out of water hoses, right? But the water is the important part. It's communicated through the hose. The hose does not quench your thirst. The water does. But the hose brings the water to a place that you can benefit from it, correct? So you see how the two work together? Saved by grace through faith. So just easy, easy illustration to make sure we get it. Then he says this, and here's what I love. Again, not taking away from eternity that we're part of, but making sure that we don't, we understand that's not the only thing we're safe for. What does it say for? We are his workmanship. The, the, the translation a little bit better calls it, we are his work of art, which I love. Because what did Paul start out in the first three verses basically describing us as? We said the word worthless. He said we were worthless. We were dead. We had nothing good about us. So God takes something that's worthless and turns it into, what does he say here? His, his work of art? His masterpiece? You ever seen like artists? Like I have no artistic ability whatsoever, so I am amazed by people that have just a little bit, right? But you ever seen like how they can take take something that, even now they've got this new work of art where they take stuff out of the trash. So they're literally taking trash and turning it into masterpieces. Right? That's, that's kind of what God's doing with us. He's saying, I, I, I'm taking what, what was worthless in you and I'm turning you. I'm, you're going to be my work of art. My transforming love is going to meet you right where you're at. And I'm going to take you where you should be going. So the same love of God that saves my soul is also going to be what? The love of God that changes my life. Where his workmanship, his creation, something new been made inside of us. Verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The beautiful thing about God is, is understanding this part right here, guys. Notice what, what, what he's saying here too, by the way. 
These are works that God has predestined. It goes back to chapter one. I know scary, scary topic to bring about in the church, right? That God had predestined, preplanned before anything else. And these works are going to be valid evidence that someone is walking along Christ. So God had already lined up the jobs and the things and the works that he was going to want you to do. He's also lined up the power he's going to give you to do them. Now it's just on you to actually follow through with the, with the walk, right? Works play no part in, in securing salvation, by the way. But afterwards, they prove, basically what Paul's getting right here, he, he's getting with, with James. And if you ever studied the book of James, you understand James is real big on action. Awesome, awesome book if you never read it and actually studied it. Like everything is hands-on, everything is pounding into how you're going to act and how you're going to treat people and how you're going to talk and, and, and all that stuff, real-life application. And Paul is saying right here, yeah, all that stuff is great as long as you understand the order, right? As long as you understand that these works are a result of the salvation that's taking place inside of you. Like you can't work to earn it, but you better be working from it, right? So we got the basis of salvation. Go back to verse 8. By grace you have been saved, have been grace, that gift, that reward, awesomeness, right? It's almost like, I'm trying to grab pictures to make sure we understand what Paul's doing here. And maybe that's because the men are, are doing parables and stuff on Wednesday, so I'm trying to get big into like present day pictures. But, but, but I picture this moment as like Paul is saying like, like you were dead and you woke up in an ambulance. And, and I hate to undermine Jesus as being a EMT or whatever they're called in the ambulance, but, but Jesus there he goes, I, I'm going to save you now. Just sit back. Right? Like, like you can't do nothing if you're in an ambulance and you're strapped up, but, but Jesus can. Then he's saying, I'm going to take care of everything, right? So, so, so maybe that's part of it. And, and I guess I'm big on that because we've got these pictures all the time that sound good. You, you ever heard people saying like, well, I was in this boat and, and I fell out the boat and, 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 and while I was in the middle of drowning, like Jesus came by in another boat and he, and he threw me this life vest and he pulled me on board and he saved me. That sounds really good, right? But that's not really what scripture says. That's really not the gospel. The gospel says what? That you weren't just drowning. It said that you were dead. It said that you were gone. It said that you were floating face down in the sea of your sin. And Jesus came and pulled your lifeless body out of the boat and breathed eternal life into your lungs. Is that not a big difference than him just throwing you a life raft? Right? I mean, it's kind of confusing for some of us that we might not like to understand it. But it's almost saying you, you ever you ever think and, and hear people paint like, like if, if you'll just reach your hand up there and grab him. And uh, No, it's saying he reached his hand down to grab you. Do we understand the difference in the picture now? It's no longer telling people, man, just reach your hand up there and he'll grab you and go the rest of the way. No, it's saying he went all the way. He came all the way while you were face down drowning in the water and he picked you up and breathed new life in you and made you a new creation. Man, I hope we get that. I think Paul was hoping that his people got that. So that's the way. And then, then, then the second thing, the instrument of salvation. What? Faith. By grace, we were saved. We just talked about it through faith. And faith is not simply this religious feeling, guys. It's not becoming more of a Christian. It's not this, this, this confidence with no doubts. Here's what faith is. Here's a real cool picture of it. I always thought it was real weird when I studied. So in the Old Testament, they would take this lamb. And, 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 and here, here's, here's the picture they believe. Like they would believe if you walked up and put your hands on the lamb, then your sins were being transformed, transferred through you to the lamb. You understand that picture? And you fully believe that. Like, you believe it. And while your hand is still on it, it slipped that thing's neck. And blood would just gulch out, right? That's what happens when you slice that, right? 
But that's the kind of faith they had. They, they fully believed that their, their sins were being transferred into this lamb, right? So, so faith is a belief that Christ has accomplished in all of us what he said he's going to do. When we don't fully believe that Christ has done what he said he's going to do, we don't fully have faith. We have doubt. Right? It's like two, two guys on a, they were getting ready to go on a plane. One being a, a, a tribesman from an area where he's never seen a plane. Never, never, never even heard of a plane. Had no idea what it was. And this other guy sitting down there and he was like this, this, this really smart guy. And he's telling him everything about how the plane flies and, and, and all this stuff about it. And this guy still doesn't understand nothing. Yet he still chooses to get on the plane. Who makes it to the final destination? Both. Because they both got on the plane. Well, I guess you could say it this way. Maybe I left that out. Like Whoever gets on the plane makes it to the final destination. Right? It didn't matter if one had understanding and one didn't. They both had enough trust and faith to get on the plane. And, and I think that's what the, the, the gospel says. Like, there's going to be areas in your walk where, and maybe that's why, again, maybe that's why Paul goes back to this area here in chapter 2 at the beginning of this letter. He says, you can't just come into the church and think everybody's going to be the same as you when they join. Like, the understanding is going to be different. We just got to make sure they get on the plane, right? Faith is not the absence of doubt. It's choosing to rest your hope in Christ. Third thing, the result of salvation. What is it? Good works, not just eternal life. I want you to write that down for real. Please understand. The, 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 had we word it? The result of salvation is good works, not just eternal life. I feel bad sometimes that we got to like, be hypercritical of certain views because we've abused them in the church. Right? Is that not what we've done, if we're honest? Like we, we've undercut what a lot of it is. Verse 10, for by his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. You're not saved by good works, but if you're saved, you will do good works. Right? Let me read that. You're not saved by good works, but if you're saved, you will do good works. You should. He's saying like there should be some evidence of this walk in you. There should have been some squirming to get you out of the coffin, right? If something hits you with that much force and that much power, you can't help but change. I mean, we're talking about the power of Christ. Ask yourself these couple of questions here as we get to this end. Have you experienced the grace of God? How can you say you understand and believe the gospel and not love him? And then the third one, it probably really hurt. How can you say you love God while enjoying those things that put him on the cross? How can I say I love my wife if I continue to do things that don't make her happy? Right? How, how can my kids say they love me yet they choose to do everything I tell them not to do? That doesn't line up, right? Is it any different? We understand it with those ways. Why don't we understand it with Christ? It's no different. And then the fourth thing, the confidence of our salvation, that what God started, he will finish. For we are created... I'm sorry, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love this part, man. Talking about God already having like, can you imagine like, think about people in scripture, think about ourselves maybe too when we think about testimonies. Like God already had some of the good things you were going to do in his mind when you were still a little heathen. Right? Like, can you imagine if, 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 if and I don't know if this works this way, but could you imagine like if, if Abba Father was sitting up there with angels and they were talking, and I don't know, I don't know how their conversations work up there. I'm not trying to say I do, but I'm just saying, like, could you imagine that? And could you imagine, like, one day one of those angels looking at Abba Father and saying, "Hold on, I was reading some of your notes, Abba, and I see like you're going to use Paul 
to start like this drastic thing and write a lot of the New Testament. And Abba's like, yeah. And Angel's like, he's killing our people. What are you talking about? He's like, I already got it worked out for him, though. Right? You ever have one of those moments where like you come to church and like you see somebody who you never thought you'd see up in church and it blows your mind? They have that same thought when they see you. Right? They do. They do. But as both of you are thinking about each other, God had good works already planned out and ready for you. It's amazing. I mean, it really is awesome. It's almost like a like a create a, a new creation from Genesis one. Think about Genesis one. God created what light out of out of nothing, right? And the darkness couldn't stop the light once He created it either. By the way, so you got to point that out, right? He spoke this light that did not exist into absolute darkness, and God does the same thing with righteousness when He comes and saves you. He, he comes inside of you with with righteousness that did not exist, and He spoke it into being. And the same powers that spoke the universe into existence that began creation, he speaks into you and and, and creates righteousness in your life. And you begin to get more right, more right, and more right, constantly like desiring and driving to want to do more. The darkness in your soul is no more able to resist the transforming power of God than the night was able to create or resist the sunrise when God created it. You think about that? You're like, yeah, but, but sometimes I make mistakes. Yeah, and he actually knew about those too. He can actually use some of those, which is crazy, right? And he can actually grow in in those as well. If we would yield ourselves to Christ and let him do these good works through us, Christianity, it's not about you doing anything for God. It's about letting God do everything through you. And that's what Paul wants to make sure they understand before they get to all this stuff that we listed for application. He wants to make sure they understand, like, like you're not doing these things, this stuff, for Christ, you're letting Christ do these things through you, right? And he's saying this this process, man, it it's all on God's power and God's ability. So if you would just embrace the the power and the ability he has, I think that's why he has this this big thing in chapter one about the power of that resurrection at the end. He wants to make sure, like like this power that I'm talking about, it's already proven itself into existence and what it can do. And if you would let that power into your life. What could it then do through you? But again, not about you. It's about everything that Christ is doing through you, in you. Right? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this, this section of the letter again, Lord. It's almost like another pause Paul has to, to get us back on track before he gets into some other stuff. God, I pray for every one of us in here this morning, Lord, Lord, for every person online that catches it either right now or during this week, Lord, Lord, that you will you will bless the understanding of our heart and our mind. God, that you will control the understanding of our ears. God, if I messed up some things that I said, Lord God, I pray that you collect you, you correct them before they get deep down to that cognitive part of everybody's brain. God, I, I pray the same thing you were praying over the early church, Lord God, when you first started your, your testimony. The same thing I believe Paul is praying right here, Lord God, over this, this church in Ephesus, Lord God, that though we may be in a rough condition outside these walls, we fully surrender, Lord God, to your understanding. God, that we will move. We'll get on the plane, Lord God. We'll fly. We'll, we'll step. We'll run in directions, Lord God, whether we understand it or not, because you're the leader. God, help us to understand what we're truly safe from, Lord. Help us understand our, 
our condition we once were in. And thank you, Lord God, for paying the price. Thank you for the trust, the gift of faith, Lord God, the gift of salvation. Lord, I just pray that you continue to increase that in every single one of your children. Your great and holy name we pray. Amen.